Here we are for another edition of the Grief Observed podcast. I am your host, Brad Morrell. And as always, I want to remind you, if you listen uh, from the Podbean app and only want to listen to certain episodes that may apply to your grief journey, you can do that by clicking on the Tags dropdown. And uh, there you can select options such as spouse, cancer, daughter, father, etc. Anything that would uh, kind of relate to your story. And it'll only show you the episodes that uh, are applicable for you and your life. Also, if you want to be on the podcast to tell your story of grief, uh, please contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash griefobservedpodcast. Uh, my guest today is Tanya, and she is on here today to speak about the loss of her husband. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for being here and uh I always state that I hate for people to meet me this way, but it is a pleasure to meet you. And, and I look forward to hearing more about your husband. So thanks for being here. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my husband was an exceptional human being. And so the opportunity to be able to share of his journey is a means of honoring his journey for me. And so I thank you for that. Yeah. So let's first talk about you. Who are you? Tell me about Tanya. Well, I am a pastor and have been now for over 20 years. I'm also a missionary. We have served as missionaries in South America and then the Caribbean. I continue to work with the Caribbean um, ministry that we started. However, I'm not living any longer in Haiti, largely due to my husband's sickness um, and then passing away, and then the condition of the country right now is not conducive for my security. And because my three children have lost their father, I didn't feel it was the right timing for them to be worrying about um, my safety and security, you know, several countries away. So I am back here in Canada. You may be able to pick up a slight Canadian accent, um, but um, I'm still here serving in Haiti, but living back home. I also am a pastor of an ongoing online uh, ministry that's global. So I'm still able to use those skill sets of um, cross-cultural uh, ministry. And uh, that's where my heart is. I love being with the people of God from every country, tongue, and tribe. And then I'm also a mother. I have three children. They are now adults. I have uh, two boys and a girl. And I am a massive, massive animal lover. So um, that's kind of summarizes a bit of where my world is right now. Wow. Yeah, I I have to say the other part of my heart is in the Caribbean as well. I, I love going on cruises and uh, I, I, I hate flying. So it's it's the easiest way for me to get to the beautiful parts of the world. And there's so many beautiful countries down in the Caribbean and uh but but for you to go there, you know, and do missionary work, that that's just a, a phenomenal calling that uh, I, I'm happy that you have. That's it's great that you could work that out. How many years have you done that uh, as far as working in other countries? I we were full time. I spent 15 to 20 years on more short term. So I've been into Southeast Asia. I've been into Africa. And then we went full-time in 2011 into Costa Rica. And then um, in 2012, I think, or early 13, uh, 2013, we were asked to go into Haiti. And again, we are still doing a work there. We have a school uh, that we have. We have um, a feeding program and we have a children's program and we do ministry in the youth prison. And so we're... <laughs> We're fairly active um, because the situation in Haiti is pretty desperate right now. And so it's unfortunately um, a situation where we're more and more in need of, um, you know, being able to be that support to see these street kids um, be able to just even have a meal that day in a safe place to hide out in the midst of a country that's in significant chaos right now. Yeah, you, you've definitely got a big heart. Were you there during um, any of the earthquakes that, that happened? So we went in 
just before I think it was their third anniversary of the earthquake. Okay. And what's really interesting, Bat Brad, is that um, you know that was you know whatever years we are now, fourteen years ago, fifteen years ago, that the earthquake happened. But that's the mindset we have as North Americans and what can be accomplished in 10 or 15 years is significantly different when you're speaking of a third world country and what they're able to accomplish. And so what we would be able to do with restoration here in Canada or probably the United States within, you know, a few weeks to a month, clean things up and get things started in restoration. Um, that is not the case. Um, there are many parts of the country, particularly in Port-au-Prince, that you can go to and it's as if the earthquake just happened a week before two weeks before mm. so um going in almost three years to the day of the earthquake was more in the terms of going in maybe a month two months um after it occurred just because of the difficulty in infrastructure and the capacity to um have the resources and the means in which to restore and rebuild the country so there's still parts of um of the city that are are still in pretty desperate situations just not as many tense cities as there were immediately after the earthquake yeah you know i i say my mission field is here and i i do truly believe that and uh, my wife has done missions in in multiple countries and and is about to do so again um but I don't think until I left the U.S. and and really saw, you know, some of these countries, and, and not granted, I was staying on resort areas, but even from like airport to resort or cruise ship to resort, um, there's a lot of just homes that would shock people who's never been out of our country. You know, I, I feel like even uh, some of the... I'll say, for lack of a better term, some of the, our poorest people here in the U.S. would look like a millionaire in some of these countries. And uh, so I I feel like uh, their version of hope is way different than what our version of hope is. And uh, just to know that people like you have a huge heart to go reach these people, not only physically, but... Uh, you know, reach them with the gospel as well. That that's huge. So, so this um, is something you and your husband did together then? Yes, we have, as I mentioned earlier, we have three children. So two of the three um, went with us to Costa Rica and then we switched again from Costa Rica to Haiti. And both of the, those two children, the oldest one stayed here in Canada. Uh, the younger two came with us. They both graduated in Haiti at a private school there. Um, and then went on to their post-secondary education, one in the U.S. and one here in Canada. So we went in and originally we went in for the reconstruction um, and the building of buildings, be it schools, uh, churches, uh, housing. Um, there might have been a couple clinics that we were also able to uh, build. We would bring teams in from other countries that would come in and work alongside of us and with our Haitian staff. We had about 40 Haitian staff uh, that would come in alongside of us and we would be able to partner together and put the building up usually within about three days. Most teams stayed with us for about seven days. We had a, um, a guest host that we oversaw um, so that we could house these teams. And I think we had 60, um, some capacity to, to sleep up to 60 people. So it was a good sized property. Uh, we lived above and then we housed our teams below and we traveled throughout all of the country in some extremely remote national geographic type places, um, as well as in the, the capital city of Port-au-Prince. After doing that for about six years or so, one of the things that we kept noticing is around the buildings, um, particularly on the streets of, of um, Port-au-Prince and some of the outskirt areas, the area that we lived in is called Pechonville. Um, that we were finding children that were clearly in distress. And mm -hmm. I had a particular experience one day that I refer to as my Damascus Road experience, which if you do know the scriptures, it refers to Saul meeting Jesus um, on his road, on the road to Damascus. And so it just is a way of saying a radical transformation took place. 
And so for me, this was a radical transformation took place when I found uh, a young boy um, seemingly dying right on the streets with the goats coming and going and the chickens running around and motorcycles and people. And I mean, just chaotic. Haiti is half the size of my home province of Nova Scotia. Um, we have in the vicinity of about, uh, we're now probably about 1 million in the province um, because of COVID. We've had an influx of people moved to our province. But we were, when we were living in Haiti, it was around 940,000 and Haiti had 11 million <laughs> and it's half the size. So it's a lot of, lot, of, lot of movement. And so in the midst of all of that dust, dirt, traffic, chickens, goats, outdoor markets, um, I encountered this young boy that was dying and it really um, rocked my world. And so I began a journey where my late husband, Darren, and I began to sense that perhaps we should be focusing on building lives rather than building the buildings. Um, the teams that we were bringing in, a team of maybe 25 people, um, when you incorporated and counted up the cost of the team coming, you were looking around the vicinity of about $60,000 US. Um, and yet we were finding out that we could feed a child for a dollar, a dollar fifty US. And so it just, we, 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 we started to experience um, a fork in the road of what we were doing in the country. And so after several years um, with a number of other um, encounters with these street children and with orphans, um, we did not renew our contract with the building of buildings. And we started our own organization called Loving the Least of These Ministries International. And we left everything except for two cats, one of which I would have been okay to leave. But we, and in a sense, I already did because she's still in Haiti. The other one I brought back with me. Um, but um, we basically took the two cats, a couple of dishes, and we left without any salary. We left without, um, you know, insurance, medical insurance, life insurance, the school um, um, support, financial support for our children and their post-education. We walked away from that. We had no vehicle, no salary. We didn't even have a bed to sleep up. We left absolutely everything uh, to take care of, which initially were uh, 14, 15 children beginning around the age of, um, I think our youngest, Christopher, was just about a year old and the oldest was around 15. And so we left what we were doing, left everything behind to start over again um, and start taking care of these street children with the goal of trying to place them in families or reunify them with their families. And we finished up the contract with the building of the buildings that we had been doing. And part of the finishing up that, of that contract was to come back to our home country and spend two to three months in the transition period. And then the contract would officially end. And so uh, Darren and I came back um, by then, our two younger children had returned to their post-secondary education situation. So we were just starting our empty nest, came back to Canada, and my husband um, had some medical tests done um, while we were here because we had free medical care here. So uh, we took advantage of, you know, medical appointments, dentist appointments, eyes or whatever, so that we could go back into Haiti um, within two months and officially begin this work with the street children and the orphans. And Darren had seen a doctor um, regarding a, uh, a lump in his neck that he had had removed, successfully removed. They had cut him on both sides of his neck. They had taken his tongue because it was originally um, the source of the cancerous lump was at the back of his throat, took the tongue way out went back in there, got the cancer, took out some lymph nodes and just made sure everything was okay. And they had said, you're fine. Um, you're 98% free to go. Just come back and check with us in a few months. So when Darren came home for that ending of our contract and he saw the cancer specialist, they did a thorough check of him and they said, um, everything's great. You don't even have to come back every three months or you can come back now every six months. So we packed up, sold everything that we had left in Canada. We left all three of our children now back in Canada. 
and went back to Haiti to try to start life over again at that time, still only having around 14 children in our care. Now we're more in the area of about 200. And we managed to find a place to live. Um, and one evening when we sat down to have a meal, I noticed that Darren was absentmindedly like feeling his neck like this. And this was about a month and a half after we had returned from Canada. And when I saw him do that, it was as if it was an outer body experience, even though it wasn't, it was like everything from the roots of my hair to the tips of my toe just sunk into the deepest part of me. I knew at that time. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, well, I just kind of feel a lump there. And I said, well, you, you, you were just checked. Like you had camera down your throat. You felt like you were, you, what do you mean there's a lump in your neck? And he said, well, maybe it's from the dental work I had. So I said, okay. And then I said, you know, I don't want to leave Haiti. <laughs> like we just got back here and we've left everything. We're here living without any support. We have no financial means. We've done, we've left everything to be here. I, I thought this journey of cancer was behind us. And so we prayed about it and felt like we would wait until his next checkup, which would have been um, the beginning, I think, of, of 2019. And um, we just continued on, um, you know, working with these children and hiring staff and trying to get ourselves settled um, without having that support structure around us. And eventually Darren started to recognize that one of the younger children we were caring for, this youngest one, Christopher, needed to have medical attention. And he took him to a hospital uh, clinic in Port-au-Prince and there was a Canadian medical team in, which was one of the reasons why we took Christopher to the hospital. When Darren took Christopher to the hospital to be looked at by the Canadian doctor, he mentioned this lump that was still in his neck. This was now November. And he was actually feeling like he had feeling some more. And he mentioned it to him and the doctor said, I am not an oncologist, but it seems to me your cancer's back and I would suggest you get back to Canada. Mm. And that began a journey of what I would describe as hell on earth for the next four and a half, almost five years of a journey that was more excruciating than I really have adequate language skills to describe. Our whole world was completely rocked. Um, and so the decision was made. We found this information out um, by this Canadian doctor in Haiti. Um, I think it was like the end of November or somewhere in the beginning of December. We had Christmas planned for our three children to meet up in Florida. Um, and we didn't want to tell them at Christmas. So Darren went back to Canada to bring our youngest daughter with him to meet me up in Florida with the other two boys. And when he went back in December, he went and got the tests and bought more tests. And by then there were seven lumps mm. that were in his, now, in his neck now. We, I received a call in Florida Christmas Eve um, telling me this information. And we made the decision not to tell the children throughout the Christmas. It was extremely difficult because Darren and I knew. Um, but we didn't tell the children until New Year's Day of 2019. Tried to keep it. At that time, we just knew the cancer was bad, but we didn't, we didn't have the details um, to be able to say at that time the seriousness of it. Excuse me. Um, and so we, told, we just kept it light at that time. And Darren returned from Florida to Nova Scotia for follow-up tests and confirmation to what was happening. And he never was able to go back to Haiti as a result of that. Hmm. Um, so what ended up happening is I traveled in and out of Haiti. When we came back to Canada, we had nothing, no car, no place to live, no clothes. We had absolutely nothing because we had been living on the mission field for, well, you know, nine years or so. And so we didn't have, we didn't have anywhere to live. We didn't have a car to drive. We didn't have, we didn't even have a salary. We were living off of, I think we lived off in an 18 month period. We lived off $5,000, I think Canadian. Um, so we were in a really, we were in a, we were in a mess 
because now we are living full time in Haiti without any financial support around us, taking care of these kids and the staff that are now dependent on us while Darren's dealing with cancer and I'm traveling in another country that is disintegrating into lawlessness, which is the state it's in now, traveling back and forth, um, clearly as a foreigner and as a woman, uh, while dealing with Darren back here in Canada without a place to live while he's getting medical tests and subsequently would end up having to start radiation and um, eventually um, chemotherapy, then eventually immunotherapy. Um, in February of 2020, um, I was in Haiti and I had had a team come in. I had actually two back-to-back -back teams that have come in that were helping me do some work with the children and some construction things that we were putting together for the orphanage that we had. And I received a message from Darren. He said, um, I am just receiving a phone call from um, the oncologist in Halifax. He was living, we were living um, at that time um, in a cabin in the woods, about 90 minutes outside of Halifax, this capital of Nova Scotia. And the doctor had called Darren and he said, are you alone? Darren said, yes. How close is the ho closest hospital to you? Darren said, 30 minutes. He said, do you have anybody to drive you to the hospital? Darren said, no. And the doctor said, we just got results back from the x-ray that we just took of your neck because you've been complaining that your neck was like it was bothering you. Um, and even though we've not been able to feel anything or see anything, we've got the x-ray back. So can you get yourself to the hospital as, as soon as possible? So Darren messaged me and said, I just received this call. I'm driving myself to the local hospital. I'll keep you posted. So I was clearly concerned, confused. I knew that Darren had been saying, Darren was never a complainer, never complained. But and so Darren's form of complaining, like mm, something doesn't feel right. Mm, it's a little uncomfortable. Well, what ended up happening is when he got to the local hospital in rural Nova Scotia, so it was a small one, he messaged me and said, I don't know what's happening, but they're all, as soon as I came through the doors, they're all flurring. The doctors and nurses are all flurring around. They're talking about taking me by ambulance to Halifax. Mm. Um, what's happening? They didn't tell him what was happening, but they did rush him by ambulance that 90 kilometers into Halifax to the larger hospital. And what ended up happening um, was he sent me a message telling me that once he arrived at the hospital, they explained to him that he was basically decapitated and had been for several months, that his second and third vertebrae were no longer attached. Oh, my goodness. And they had no medical records of how someone would not at the minimal be a quadriplegic let alone be able to feel all of his limbs and be alive. And so I received this message while I was in Haiti. Um, my three children rushed in to be with their father because I'm not there. I'm only getting updates by text. Um, and they told my husband that he, they had, it was serious. The doctors and the nurses from different departments would come in and feel Darren because they, and they'd poke him. They couldn't believe that he had feeling. And when my children arrived at the hospital, um, one of the doctors was at a counter and he kept looking over them and my children looked like their father. And so he recognized they probably were family. And he said, are you related to Darren Cusey? And they said, yes. And they introduced himself as Dr. So-and-so. And he said, Tell me again, your father has been walking without problem? Yes. Your father's been stacking wood without problem? Yes. Your father's been lifting large furniture in and out of the garage? Yes. They, they didn't know what to do with them. So they explained that they were going to put him in traction for 18 hours. And if that was not able to attach his head and his neck back together, that they were going to have to go in and cut him from the back of his skull down and fuse his neck. Wow. They put him in traction for 18 hours. It did not work. They took him in for the surgery. 
And when he came out, he survived the surgery, clearly. He came out of the surgery without a voice. He came out of surgery with never able to move his neck again. He came out of surgery with his jaw locked open so he could not close his mouth. Mm. I was preparing to rush home from Haiti as quickly as I could. And his answer to me, Brad, was um, because we would communicate. He would text and I would answer audibly and then he would text the answers back and he said I don't want you to come back the children in Haiti need you more than I do right now um our children are with me um I do not want you to come back and thankfully by God's grace my three children were there to hear their father do this so they realized that mom not rushing on the next plane was his will that was what he wanted me to do was to stay in Haiti um, for the remainder of this team that I was overseeing and then come back to Haiti, which I did. When I got back from Haiti to Halifax, that was in February, 2020, February 24th, I believe it was. Within two to three weeks, COVID hit my province. We were one of the last provinces in Canada to have our first COVID case. We ended up being, I believe, the strictest regulations in the country, if not North America. And therefore everything shut down. I couldn't get back to the country because yeah. the flight into Haiti closed down and the border between the US and Canada closed down. So I couldn't go back to Haiti through the US. And therefore also my husband was in a state where for a long period of time um, I needed to be here. So I was not able to return back to the country even though I had just taken a suitcase or two because I thought I'm going to go home. We're going to sort this out and I'll do this routine of traveling back in and out of the country of Canada and Haiti. Um, so I didn't say goodbye to our children we were caring for. I didn't prepare the staff for me not coming back. Our home was there. Our clothes were there. Our animals were there. You know, our, our, that's where we lived. That was our lives. That was our work. That was our calling. That was our passion. That was our purpose. And so to compound the stress of coming back to Canada with a husband who's sick without having any resources to provide for ourselves, um, even down to the point of wearing borrowed clothes, which I'm still actually wearing now that I think about it, I still have those clothes on right now, um, was only compounded the grief because the grief wasn't solely my husband being sick. And it wasn't even solely the moment that I walked through the bedroom door and found him gone. It was this compounded grief of all of these other losses that were happening, the sense of purpose and passion that we had, the life that we were living, which we planned to live for the rest of our lives, the children that we were our children, including this young 12 month old baby. You know, these were Haitians that depended on us. And so, and animals, being a big animal lover, you know, even leaving my animals behind proved to be an added source of pain uh, to a very difficult situation. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't think about the secondary losses in, in grief, you know, that uh, you're stating, you know, not only had you lost a husband, but you, you lost really a life, a life that you had felt called to. And, uh, and there were so many other things there that you mentioned that, you're grieving those as well. And, and I think, uh, too, we can't discount that you're grieving a loss of really the vision of what you and your husband had your purpose, your calling. And, uh, let me ask you from, uh, your faith standpoint, like what, what did it feel like when you felt that, wow, my, my calling has been, um, for lack of better words, changed, you know, you, we all have this vision of what we think, uh, you know, God wants for us and, and maybe it is for a time. Right. But then when it changes, uh, you know, we do grieve that as well. So I'll, well, I'll let you speak there. Thank you. That is a, that is a, a very powerful question. I will tell you where I was back those five years ago, and then I'll bring you to where I am today which is now heading into two years since I found my husband passed away. I have been a follower of Christ for over half my life. I come from a traumatic childhood. Life has not been simple and easy for me. 
um, even living in a third world country where um, my security and that of my children were considered to be a real concern, put it that way. It would take me a lot of time to unpack some of the dangers. It was not uncommon to see my children, you know, on the way to school, find dead bodies on the streets or riots, you know, um, where people are coming and holding guns to the windows of the parents coming to pick up the kids. If they're white, particularly, they were targeted. So it was a constant chaos um, and chaotic environment to be in. And so I had not been a... Um, a flaky follower, if I could put it that way. I'm not a fan of Jesus, I'm a follower um, because I've had to navigate really difficult experiences in my life. And at no point in time during those years that I've served Christ, have I come to a crisis of faith until this happened. Mm. I've dealt with the Haiti crisis. I've dealt with even the, the first round of Darren's um, head, neck and throat cancer, um, dealt with, you know, being a female clergy and a male dominated ministry and what that meant for me as a young woman, um, with young children. Like I, 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 I've navigated the tough stuff, but it never got to a point where I was thrown into and thrust into a faith crisis. And this did it to me. And so when I received that phone call on Christmas Eve, where Darren said, yes, Tony, they're telling me the cancer's back, I became very angry. Mm. I felt as if God was yanking my life around and playing games with it. And even though I knew theologically that that was not true, my mind and my emotions were on complete meltdown and i described it as god and i were not in speaking terms for quite some time i often say that you know um you can miss life by 18 inches head to heart right and and i've recently started thinking even a little bit outside of that okay logic says um especially when we read the bible that that god is is he's not out for you he's not trying to make your life more difficult. Uh, the heartstrings start pulling at us stating, uh, but you know, this is going on. So maybe he is, you know, so I think our heart will lie to us a lot of times, but thinking outside of head and heart, there's also the spiritual realm that, uh, you know, I guess would be discounted by a lot of people, but, uh, sometimes even believers. So when we think about, um, God and and what he wants, you know, the bigger picture. And we know that all things work for his good, right? Um, and it's easy to read that in the Bible. It's easy to hear that from others. But when you're going through difficult times, there's something that I think makes us doubt. And uh, I don't know, it sounds like you had those moments of doubt, at least for a while. There was, there was some measure of doubt, but it was more anger. Okay. Um, and it wasn't solely that my husband was sick because even Christians get sick. Sure. Um, that really wasn't the fullness of the faith crisis. It was more, it was the combination of some of what you've already identified. We left everything to do what we were doing. We now had the responsibility of these children. We could not just say, hey, Darren's sick. We're going to go back to Canada. That was not an option. We now were dealing with Haitians who depended on us for their employment, who had families that they were providing for. We had left, you know, um, the security of a salary and our children had to, you know, lose out on financial support to go for their post-secondary education. You know, so it, there was a lot of the losses that went with it that compounded it. And so to be, you know, a month and a half into this, caring for orphans and for street children and Darren's now feeling a lump in his neck, which just a month and a half ago wasn't there. And then within a few months of that, it's seven. And then within a few months of that was even more. And so it, it was the sense that God had played a trick on me. We had 
stepped out into this very scary situation. It felt like jumping off a cliff with nothing, but the faith that God was going to either resurrect you from the dead if you hit jagged rocks, or he was going to reach out his hand and you weren't going to hit those rocks. And then I felt like we got hit the rocks and it's like, it disoriented me spiritually. Um, but I don't think I ever get to the point where I doubted it was more, I was angry with what you, what are you doing with my life and where am I to go now? And how am I to take care of a sick husband, be a comfort to my own three children while taking care of these, these children in Haiti and providing for them while taking care of the Haitians. And I just felt abandoned in that. And I was angry. Um, that lasted I think the anger probably lasted for some time, but the not speaking terms probably, I don't know, perhaps a month, <laughs> um, which felt like eternity at the time. And I switched my approach to telling them I'm mad. Before I was just so mad, I don't even know what to say to you, to I'm mad and I'm now, I'm now gonna tell you. I'm now gonna tell you what I really think and what I really feel, because you know it anyway. And this, this is not, this is not cool with me. What are you doing with my life? So rather than allowing the pain to drown my faith, I chose to take the pain to the only one that's worthy of my faith. Now, I did not know in those earlier stages of, you know, 2019 into 2020, what was going to lie ahead of me. I did not know that I was actually going to leave my, lose my husband. Darren, I believed for all that time frame that God was capable of healing him. And there were miracles. The fact that his neck and his head were not attached and the man was still moving says that God is capable of the impossible. So we believe that and we prayed for that. We asked for that. We fasted for that. We encouraged one another in that. I did not know that I was going to open the door one day and find him gone. And so we, we stayed in that lane of faith through all of that. But it was a deep struggle. As a matter of fact, it was more of a struggle for me than it was for him. Mm. Darren was never angry. Darren never questioned God. I have all of his journals and videos that he put together. As the pastor preacher, I was the communicator in the family. Darren would say that. He said, I'm not the communicator. My wife is. He would say his sense of calling was to be a fence around me, a protective covering as a female clergy that he would, he felt secure as being that helpmate to me in ministry. At home, he's the head of the house. But when it came to ministry, we were in partnership, but I was the communicator. And so for him to communicate in written form or in audio or in video was significant. And I have all that he wrote there. And it, it when, he, when he put his things out publicly, it nearly went viral. People were so impacted by this man who lost his voice, couldn't, he, by the way, he couldn't swallow anymore. So when they, when they fused his neck, he couldn't swallow his saliva anymore, which meant he could never eat again and he could never drink again. He was, a, he was on a feeding tube in his stomach and eventually he almost lost his arm, came this close to losing his arm because of a blood clot. They were gonna amputate it. They managed to save the arm and he had to have daily injections. So there was a lot of stuff that went on there, but he never complained. And he never questioned his faith and he was never angry with God. I was, I was. So as this journey went on with watching him increasingly suffer, watching the impact that that had on our lives as husband and wife, our marriage, the impact it had on our three children who adored and still adore their father, the impact on our children in Haiti who considered Mr. Darren their dad. Um, to see the impact on extended family members, to watch all of that and not have clarity as to what God was doing. The faith crisis for me was harder than the actual situation that we were in. That was more, that was more painful for me. It would be as some might be able to understand the dark night of the soul. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't want cancer for anybody. But a faith crisis for a follower of Jesus Christ, it, it is a form of hell on earth. It is horrible. But here's the thing. I'm now, you know, we are what? Five years later, I'm coming into, or not more, because it's been since 2018 
that he was first diagnosed in 2017, 2018, he came back, he died in 2022. So this has been a quite a bit of journey for me. And now I'm two years as a widow. And my faith is stronger now than it ever has been. Mm. But it's been a journey. It's been meeting God in the most brutal, excruciating, crushing that is beyond description and meeting more than a theology and more than a doctrine, more than a religion, but meeting a real God who really is Emmanuel, the one with us. So the morning that I, 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 it's interesting because the week before, almost to the day that I found Darren, I was doing a, um, a service in online in, um, in uh, Pakistan. I was, I was ministering online. And um, at the end of that time with the Pakistani pastor that I was speaking with, um, I mentioned something about my, you know, my husband and he made some reference to praying. And I said, yes, I, I said, I can't help but feel if sometime I'm going to open the door and find him dead a week later. That's exactly what happened. Wow. So when I opened, I got up that morning and one of the things, Brad, that I struggled with in this faith crisis is I blamed myself for Darren's cancer. I mm. felt responsible for that. And at one point in time, I actually said that to Darren. and He was perplexed. He said, well, even if you were, I wouldn't be angry with you. Like he was, he was like, that's, I don't understand that, Tanya, but that's how I felt. And so for the years that he was suffering, I would say that to the Lord, you know, is, is this my fault? Did I do something wrong? that's brought this on us. And so that morning before I opened my eyes, after all those years of praying and fasting and crying out to God, I, I said, I, I heard the voice of God, not in an audible way, but I heard it in a way that I knew was clear as if it was audible. Mm -hmm. And this is what he said, said, sin, sacrifice trumps sin. Suffering does not trump sacrifice. And so what that was saying to me, that even if this was sin that brought this into your lives, my sacrifice trumps that. And suffering, my sovereignty, and the sacrifice of my death on the cross covers suffering. I am sovereign. I am savior. So I didn't know what was going to happen that morning when I put my feet on the floor. I had a prayer meeting that was going to be online. I thought, okay, I got to get up. I got to shower. I got to feed the cat. And I did all of that. I did not go into the room that Darren had been sleeping in because number of reasons, one of which he didn't sleep well and didn't want to disturb me. He was up and down at night. And so I heard the TV on in the room that he was staying in. I jumped in the shower. I got ready for this meeting. I fed the cat. I had about 10 minutes left. And I thought I should just check to see if he's okay. Does he need anything before I start this meeting at nine o'clock? I opened the door and as soon as I opened the door, he had a prayer chair that he would spend upwards of six and a half hours a day praying in. He was still in that prayer chair. The TV was still on and he was gone. Mm. And I collapsed in his, at his feet. I have never before nor since then experienced such a raw, almost animalistic wailing. It was absolutely every cell, every portion, completely crushed. To see my best friend, my husband, my life partner, the father of my children, my prayer partner, my ministry partner gone. And I didn't get to say the goodbye because I just spoke to him a few hours before there. And so, when I collapsed in this state of absolute horror, I again heard the voice of the Lord, not in an audible way, but I heard it three times. Death, where is thy sting? Death, where is thy sting? By the time I heard it the third time, I was starting to register out of the state of shock that I was hearing the voice of my God and I was hearing him say the same thing over and over to me. So I stopped the meltdown long enough to go and get my Bible because I knew the scripture, but I, I couldn't 
go the full, I knew there was more now after that that I needed to read. And I went and I got it and I read it and I ended up preaching my husband's own service. Mm. And I preached from that verse because it comforted me greatly. And it gave me the assurance that God was sovereign in the situation, that he was still in control, that Darren was with him, and there was no sting because Darren had accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. So after I read the scripture, the next thing I said, Lord, is I don't do what, do, I don't know what to do. I don't do I call the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? Do I call an ambulance? What I don't know what to do. And at that very moment, the phone rang. Darren's phone, actually. And I went and I answered the phone. I was scared at first because I didn't know. I was so out of it. I was so out of it. But I went and answered the phone, his phone nonetheless. And it ended up being um, a nurse on the other line. And she said, um, this is such and such a nurse. I'm expected to see Darren today to bring him because we had a nurse coming in periodically to help ensure that he was doing um, the injections properly and what have you. And so she said, I'm expected to see Darren today, but she said, I wanted to know if he needed whatever, whatever, whatever. And I, I thought, do I say something? Do I, what do I do? And so I said, I'm really sorry, but I have just found Darren passed away and she lost it too. She said, I just talked to him. I just saw him. He was, he was fine. I don't understand. And I said, well, I'm, I'm shocked too, but this is where I'm at right now. And I don't know what to do because of that phone call. She initiated the, the process that needed to be in place that I wasn't aware of that I wasn't able to handle. Mm. Um, and my next trauma was calling my three children to tell them. And they were two and a half hours away from me. Um, wow. How, so yeah, I was just going to ask like, um, how has this transformed your faith now? Like you're, you're almost two years out at this point from his passing and where are you in your faith walk today? Well, as I mentioned, you know, earlier, it's stronger now than ever. The more I had to depend on the Lord for my very sanity, um, the more I have met him. And you may know the scriptures well enough to know that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He says pure religion, what really matters to him is caring for widows and orphans. The scriptures are clear in his being the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, the one that comforts those that mourn and provides for those who grieve. And so here I am coming off the mission field without a support structure around me because we had been living internationally. So those relationships weren't there for us. We, even when Darren came back with the cancer, we, we went through that alone, just he and I. And what compounded it was the fact that it was COVID and we couldn't even be with our family because we were in different parts. We were like um, anywhere between an hour to an hour and a half apart from each other, two hours in some cases apart from each other. But because we were in different municipalities, it was illegal for us to cross over to see them or them to cross over to see us. Hmm. And so we were in lockdown, um, which only isolated us in this journey all the more. And so when Darren passed away, we didn't have, I didn't have a support structure around me really outside of my three children. Um, and so I had to depend on the Lord for absolutely everything, even the capacity to think because I, I went numb. I, 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 my brain, my brain shut down. My emotions went into numb, numb land. I, I, I couldn't eat. I lost hair. I lost weight. I couldn't sleep. If I, if I did get up in the morning an hour and a half later, I'd have to go for a nap, which I never nap ever. I couldn't keep food down. I wouldn't even remember to eat. I wouldn't even think, Oh, I haven't eaten for two days or I haven't drank anything. Like I had no, I, I was incapacitated. Hmm. And so I had to depend on the Lord to take care of me because at the same time that I'm dealing with the loss of Darren as a wife, I'm still a missionary and I still have all these children and Haitians 
that I'm responsible for. So I, I had to pick up the baton that he dropped to continue that work. I couldn't say I need a month. I knew I didn't even have a day. The very next day I had to be sending money over to Haiti. I have to keep people informed of what's going on. I have to keep the fundraising going. I have to keep the communications up to date. I have to deal with this crisis, that crisis that's going on with the staff. And so I had to have Jesus as my everything in things, all things for all, everything. I didn't know how to deal with an estate. How do I do that? Where do I go? Where do I go with the funeral home? Who do, who do I call to come get him? Because he died at home. I didn't know what to do there. Uh, I didn't know, you know, what I do with um, activating the will. Do I call my lawyer? You know, there was so, even not even knowing what to do, but the capacity to physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually even do it was beyond my ability. And certainly that first six to eight months, but for the first year, hardly functioned. And because I was two and a half hours away from my children, they were insistent that I move. <laughs> I was like, I knew, I knew that really for the first year after a major loss, not really a good idea to make any major changes. I literally could not remember to eat, drink, sleep, function. And I have to figure out how to do this estate. How do I do the will? How do I do his banking? That was a, that was a nightmare. That was a nightmare. Um, let alone how to pack up a foreign level house and by myself mm. and go through all of his clothes, go through all of his, I mean, I just, I was, I was like, I just can't do it. And all three of them sat across the, the dining room table for me and spontaneously said at the exact same time, it is not an option for you to stay here. We're going to move you. So within Darren passed away in March, by April, I had the, by April, I was putting the house up by May. It was on the market. And by May, I was back in Haiti to deal with, we had three properties in Haiti we were responsible for. So I had to go back and relive going back to Haiti without Darren, go back and go through his clothes and his tools and his life in Haiti without him, mm. all within 14 days, um, and be able to deal with the property, the rentals, the staff, the kids, the animals, while being extremely sick. Physically, I, my, 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 my faith sustained me, but my, my physical body took a brunt to it. Um, so yeah, it was, you, I don't believe for me, I haven't watched Darren go through everything he went through um, in those nearly five years and see him with the intimate relationship that he had with his savior and the legacy of faith that he left behind for me and for our three children and the legacy of love strengthened me to be able to face what was my crisis, which was life without him. Um, and continues to inspire me to this day, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, Tanya, I, I know we're getting close to our hour, but, uh, I do want to ask you a question. Um, like, tell me about your hope to see him again. Oh, great question. Yeah. The scriptures say for those of us who are followers of Christ, that we grieve, but not as the world grieves. And Jesus grieved. It, you know, Isaiah 53 says he was a man familiar with grief and sorrow. He was rejected. He was abandoned. You know, he was, he was brutally murdered. And, and he understands sorrow and loss and grief. He wept at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, you know. Um, and so I've learned that grief is part of the journey of this fallen world that we live in. And it comes to those of us who follow Christ and those of us who do not yes. grief comes, but I don't, I don't grieve without the comfort and the compassion and the companionship of Jesus Christ. He is so real to me. I have seen so many times when he stepped in Isaiah 54, I believe it says where, he is our maker and my husband. It actually says that. So not only is he my creator, not only is he my savior, not only is he my father and my friend, he is now my husband. 
And so there's a tenderness in the relationship that I didn't have when I was Darren's wife and he was my husband, because mm-hmm. I've now encountered Christ in a depth that I didn't have to before. He's now my provider. I don't have a husband to help provide for me. I've had to figure out how to provide for myself. And so that grief is still there, but the comfort of Christ is there. And with the comfort of Christ, I grieve, but not the way the rest of the world grieves without hope. I know I'm going to see Darren QC again. I know, and the Lord on the Darren's one year anniversary of his death, we don't have time to go into it all right now because I know we're so close to our ending of time. But God gave a miracle to me that we caught on video and we caught through photography that happened with three of my children, my new daughter-in-law. So there was five of us all at the exact same time. God did that miracle and we have it on video and we have it on picture that we didn't intend to. We captured it without realizing we were going to capture it. And so the Lord, yes, you're grieving, but I'm with you in the grief. He is Emmanuel. And that's where the hope comes. You're not left alone. You're not forsaken. You're not forgotten. God still has a plan. He still has a purpose is to give a hope and a future, not to harm. And there's going to be a day when my Darren's going to come for me and together we're going to go to our Jesus in worship of him for all eternity. This stuff that I've been through personally, the stuff that I've been through as a missionary, the stuff that I've been through as a female clergy, the stuff that I've been through as a widow, I'm telling you with everything that is within me, even in the faith crisis that I had, it is not something I could have or would have survived if it were not for the reality of a real relationship. Religion was not enough to get Darren through what he got through, and it's not enough to get me through it. It wouldn't have. Ha- it was not enough. There had to be a real God that showed up when the real worst happened, and he had to be there while life was falling apart. Because every that's what the faith crisis was. It's like, is everything I believe really true? And who is this God that would allow this to happen? Well, now all these years later, through the, the years of the sickness, through being forced to come off the mission field, through being a widow now, navigating life for two years on my own. And I can say with absolute certainty, I have grieved, I am grieving, but I have hope because of the reality of a real relationship with a real God. Because I, I, there's a, a faith that's not tested really isn't a true testimony. Wow. Tanya, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, and and I, I know that um, this this podcast will inspire many just uh, and, and instill hope in others through uh, your words. And and I really thank you for being here and, and I, I'm going to go ahead and invite you back because I feel like there's, there's probably a part two in there somewhere. And uh, you know, whether it's six months down the road, a year, I, I want to check in with you and see where you're at in your grieving journey at that point. But I, I do. I, I think there's so much more there. I can see it in you and, and others can't see that. I, I hate that we're not doing video or a YouTube channel. Maybe that's something I'll do later, but, uh, but I, I, I just see, and I hear it in your voice. There, there's so much more of your story to tell. Um, I do want to leave you with any final words, any, uh, anything that you want to share with the listeners or anything that, uh, you just feel like we need to, to get in here in these these last few minutes. Well, once again, I'm thankful for the opportunity to share the story. It's it's pro- part of the process of grieving is telling the story. And it's also a way in which I honor my husband in the years that we've had together. So I thank you for that. There are two things that come to mind. Number one is you're absolutely right. This is there's so much more. One of the major issues of my grief journey, the compound grief of Darren and leaving the mission field is why did I have to come back from Haiti when I never, ever wanted to? Why did I have to leave the children, the life that we lived there? I have answers for that now that we never get a chance to unpack. So that would be wonderful to be able to say, I have an answer for why that is. It didn't come immediately, but I feel like I've heard for myself, thus saith the Lord and how God is using what was my crushing to bring comfort to others. And one of the ways that that happens is not just by telling my story and being honest about the vulnerabilities and the places where, you know, um, I was less than strong in my faith um, and really as a human being, to be honest with you at times. But one of the ways I do that is through praying. It not only brings comfort to me, 
to have that communication with a God that I know hears me and answers me and makes me laugh in prayer. That's the craziest thing. I'm always amazed at this God. I was not born a Christian in a Christian family. I, I, that, that didn't happen until I was, you know, out of high school. So it's not like this was just something I was raising. No, I had a radical encounter with the real God. And I've learned the value of prayer. So if you are willing to allow me, I would love to pray for the listeners because there may be people that are just starting on this grief journey. There may be those who not even sure what this faith journey that I've talked about, what does that even look like? What does that mean? Or maybe there's some others who are in positions of Christian ministry that might not feel it's safe enough to say, you know what, I'm struggling with my faith. Mm. You know, this crisis, this grief has, has gutted me because as you may already know, people actually die from this. There is such a thing as a broken heart. You can actually die from a broken heart physically, scientifically, medically, a fact. Having experienced what happened to me, I can see how that can happen. Mm. And so I would love the opportunity to pray for people wherever they're at and ask my God to comfort them with wherever they are at in their stage and season of grief. Well, I will not deny that request at all. So yes, it the, the floor is yours. Let's pray. Okay, so... I'll start a little bit in Creole and then we'll switch to English. Papa Nunan Kiyosa, Mi Monday Pouju, Tuje, Reme Nu, Messi Poussa, Messi Poujunesa, Messi Pou, Momasa avec Zomim Brad, Matt Puyen Pral, Benny Lee, Benny Ministeli, Guide Lee avec Saint Esprit. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had and we thank you for Brad and the work that you have given to him. And we ask that you would guide him with your spirit and bless him with the work that you have given to him. It's a work, God, that that is dealing with people's deepest places of pain and sorrow and loss and grief. It is a place where people are most vulnerable, who are dealing with suffocating sadness, who feel like they're drowning in despair where they, it's difficult to even know, is there a hope in the future for them without that loved one being there with him, them? And so I pray that you would bless them with increased capacity to be a source of your compassion for the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that even though life does not always feel good and not always do good things happen, you are always good. You are good all the time and all the time you are good and that you are faithful for those of us who know you and seek you and serve you and submit to you. You are faithful to never leave us nor forsake us and to cause all things, even grief, to work together for our good and for your glory. That you truly do bring beauty out of brokenness. You bring beauty out of ashes. You are the God of all comfort and the Father of compassion. You are gentle and kind. You are love itself. You are not only loving in what you do, you are loving in who you actually are. Thank you. Thank you that you did not leave me in my moments of despair, those dark seasons that I was struggling through. You met me in that worst moment when I found my best friend gone. I thank you for preparing me that morning before I even opened my eyes that you are sovereign, that it was not my sin that made this decision of my husband's death, that sacrifice, the sacrifice on the cross covered my sin and your sovereignty, that all of Darren's days were ordained before he even took his first breath. His beginning and his end was under your lordship and he didn't want it to be any different than that. I thank you for the legacy that he left behind for me of what it means to trust you in sickness and in health, to trust you in sorrow and suffering and to know indeed that you are the God who won't leave nor forsake us, that you are indeed Emmanuel, the one who is with us. You are familiar with sorrow and suffering. For you yourself, Jesus, died a horrible death, not because you deserved it, because we deserved it. But yet while we were sinners, you so loved us that you died for us and you seek to woo us into your embrace of grace through the working of your spirit. I'm asking for you as your daughter, as your servant, I'm asking for you to embrace those that are listening and have heard my story today with your everlasting arms of love, that they would experience and encounter you in a way that brings them comfort so that they too can grieve 
but not as the rest of the world grieves, that they can grieve with hope and experience the healing that comes with that hope, especially the hope of being restored and reunited with you for all eternity and for those that have died in the position of seeking you and serving you as their own personal savior. So thank you for the time we have had. It's been divinely directed and we have delighted in your presence with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Wow, that's uh, powerful. I have a feeling that uh, I'll be bringing you back a little bit quicker than six months, Tanya. It's it's been a true pleasure, and and I do look. I, I'm curious of other facets of this story, and uh, really look forward to meeting again with you. So, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in, and uh, just be on the lookout. We'll have Tanya back, and. Uh, We'll, we'll hear more of her story, and we just thank you for, for being on this uh, episode and listening with us, and uh, I hope you've truly been blessed by Tanya's story and uh, her, her fantastic words and, and prayer, and uh, certainly, if you don't know Jesus, uh, there there is, uh, I don't know, in my life, no other way that, that I could get through this life without him, and... Uh, Certainly, if you have any questions about that, feel free to email me. I'd be happy to speak with anybody about it. And uh, we do have a hope that uh, others do not have. And and just read First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Just such powerful verses that we can meet our loved ones again by just simply knowing the Lord. So anyway, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, again, I hope you've been blessed. Have a great day, everyone.